0: And thank you all for worshiping this morning, and I pray that's what we're here to do this morning. Praise our King, our Lord Jesus Christ. As we begin today, we are, uh, have been walking through this Christmas, the Old Testament, and looking at different texts and scriptures that pointed toward the coming of the King. In fact, our very first sermon in this series was looking at a promise made to David of a future king from his line, the king who would sit upon David's throne, be a descendant of David, and yet greater than David. Of course, David didn't have all those details, except that it said of him, his reign will have no end. So I think David recognized the greatness of the one who was being prophesied. A great king was coming. And of course, we also saw that he was to be a priest, that's unusual, both king and priest. We would think if we knew our scriptures well, we would be mindful of Melchizedek. We think there's a man in whom the kingship and the priesthood were united. And of course, David doesn't leave much to our imagination, as he says in the Psalms, that you shall be a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So again, you have this unusual pairing, something significant, something that would get your attention. His advent will be a great sign. We looked at this last Sunday. A great sign uh, to a wicked king, yes, but also to the whole house of David. And the people of the Lord, they would recognize a promise that there would be one who would come, born of a virgin, and that this was the one to watch for. And his advent would be decisive, victorious, that God would be through him signaling The victory. In fact, we know that Christ uh, came into this world in a uh, part of the irony of that beautiful song is things like stumbling upon the ground he had made. You think about the great ironies of that, that God is working in this way, sending his son, fully God himself, freely coming into this world, taking on a tent of flesh to do what? To go to Calvary's cross, to give his life as an atonement for his people. My friends, all of this showing the greatness of this this action that God is undertaking. One of the things that I think all of this shows us is that God works in unexpected ways. You know, a reason that it was missed at His first advent was, of course, wickedness and hard-heartedness, but also because it didn't come in the way people expected. They expected this great king to be born probably in a palace in some incredible city, at least Jerusalem, had to be something like that. But they'd missed the Scriptures which told them these very things. As the wise men come, they have to say, where did the prophet say? In what town is the Messiah to be born? Oh, in Bethlehem Ephrathah. That's where Bethlehem, just a short distance. And I've said this many times, but it's telling that even after this prophetic word is given again, that there's no record of anyone going with the wise men. Here these travelers have come in and the whole town is stirred up. Fearful. Fearfulness in the town. surprise in the town. Shock in the town. And yet no one says, let's take this short journey. Short journey to see if these men know what they're talking about. If the Christ that we claim to have been long waiting for has actually been born. Eh, we'll leave it for others to report back. My friends, I think we already see hard-heartedness just in those details. A generation that, as Christ will quote the prophets, was close with their lips but their hearts far away. They said the right things, they gave the right word, and yet it didn't avail much, didn't accomplish much, didn't show up in much of what they did. So I want us to see here that God chooses to work in unusual ways. In ways that to us seem counterintuitive from time to time. In fact, maybe often seem counterintuitive. Historically as He works, and even in our own day as He works, He works in ways that surprise us because His ways are not our ways. The ways our hearts would set upon are ways of wickedness. The Bible tells us this. And so we need to recognize that God chooses to work in unusual ways. So as we continue our journey through the Old Testament, we're going to be quick this morning. But I want us to look at one final text. And so I've read it, but I want to read just a part of it again. Starting in chapter 4, verse 1. Now the angel who talked with me came back and awakened me as a man who was wakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, what do you see? So I said, I am looking, and there is a lampstand of solid gold with a bowl on top of it, and on the stand seven lamps with seven pipes to the seven lamps. Two olive trees are by it, one on, at the right hand of the bowl and the other at its left. So I answered and spoke to the angel who talked with me, saying, What are these things, my Lord? Then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, Do you not know what these are? And I said, No, my Lord. And so he answered and said to me, They are the words of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. And then if you just skip down just a little bit further to verse 8. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of the temple. His hand shall also finish it. And then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For those, for who has despised the day of small things. Now, obviously, if you look at the front of your bulletin, we're focusing on the idea of the day of small things. The day of small things. There is a theme here that runs throughout the Bible that I think is a warning to us beware of critiquing, criticizing, despising small things, that God is often choosing to work in just this way. Now, as we look at this text, I want us to look at two points. First of all, a quick walk through the text. And second of all, a sure promise from the Lord. Now, as you think about this text, maybe you know the setting. The people have come back from exile. They've entered the land and they immediately got started rebuilding Jerusalem, as you would expect. This is their home, their city. They laid out the grid line for the new temple. And they even laid the foundation of that temple. And then they turned to their own homes. They said, now's not the time to complete the temple. Now, I'm not sure what made them think that. Maybe they felt like we've got to get our home secured so we don't uh, freeze in the winter. I don't know what they were thinking. But it feels a little bit after 17 years of not finishing the temple that it was more or less an excuse. I mean, surely somewhere along the line there would have been time to finish the temple. But they just stopped working on it. They just stopped. And so it sat abandoned, just the foundation of it laid. Now you may remember that uh, even as the temple was laid out and people saw the, the grid lines, they saw the, how large it was going to be, there was kind of a regret, wasn't there? There was a feeling that this isn't as grand as what we once had. And so we see this idea throughout those texts that there is a lament, a despising of the day of small things. And maybe that's part of it. If you 're not excited about something, maybe there's no motivation to do it, even though this is the temple of the living God, should be center place, centermost within your city. Now just think back to our first sermon in this series at Christmas, and you had David who said, "Is it right that I dwell in a palace of cedar and the Lord's ark be under a tent?" And now you have, if you read the prophetic words around this, you have people who all are dwelling in homes of cedar, and no one's concerned there's no temple. No one's concerned that there is no place for Israel to gather in Jerusalem uh, to uh, do what they're called to do according to the law of God. And so there's a problem here. And it does seem like when you look at the prophetic word given here through or to Zechariah, you see this idea that there must be something to do with this day of small things that is at least a huge part of the holdup. People are just not motivated by a temple that's not as impressive, not as big, not as perhaps glorious, it would seem, as that first temple that Solomon had built. And so there's a problem here. And so as we think about this for a moment, as you walk through this, this is a vision given to Zechariah. It's in a series of visions that he likely got in a single night, vision after vision that speak to different elements of what needs to be done you go to the chapter right before this, you see much said about Joshua, the high priest. Yeshua, this high priest who uh, shares the same name as our Savior. And of course, the one who also succeeded, uh, succeeded uh, Moses and became the leader of the people of Israel. So an important name. And then in this chapter, we see this man who is the governor or the leader, the, the rightful heir to the line, uh, who is leading this movement to to rebuild the temple. And in fact, there must be some great odds here. It must be hard to get going again. Because what the Lord basically tells them is, it's not going to be done in your strength. Whatever obstacles you see that are in the way of completing this work, they're nothing before you. What might those obstacles be? Not enough resources. Not enough workers. Not enough skilled artisans. But I think if we read back to the tabernacle, God provided all those things, didn't He? It was by the Spirit of the Lord those artisans were able to do the work that they did to sculpt the things necessary for the the tabernacle. And I think, again, God is reminding these men that whatever obstacles they may face, they are nothing before the power and glory of God. If they need artisans, God will raise them up. He will empower them through the Spirit. If they need materials... Who better to provide than the one who owns everything? He'll make sure they have what they need. It's not in more might, more strength. It's not in more earthly numbers and power that this will be accomplished, but by the Spirit of the Lord. I think that's an important reminder to the church, isn't it? That oftentimes we get into looking at what resources we have, what numbers we have, and we think, what can we accomplish? But again, the Lord says, you're looking too much on your own ability and not enough on what I am able to do. And we know that for God, nothing is impossible. Nothing is too hard. We're told that over and over again, just in this story that is the Christmas story, that nothing is too hard for God, that He can accomplish what He desires to accomplish. Nothing can stop Him. And that's why He says, whatever mountain might be in the way, God will move it out of the way. Imagine for a moment, whatever mountains Erbil is facing in front of him, God says, I will make it like a plain. I will flatten it down. This is a message given over and over in the prophets as well, isn't it? That God will take the high cliffs and bring them low. He will smash out the mountains and bring them to the plains. God tells us over and over again, he's got that kind of power. We wouldn't doubt it, I pray. Except in our everyday life when challenges get big and problems begin to mount and we think, what can we do? I think the message is quit looking to your own abilities and start praying to the one who has all ability. That's what he's telling us and that's what he's telling them here. You're looking too much on how you stack up the odds. But you're forgetting to pray to the one who can turn any odds around at any moment uh, based on his will. And so we're told this here. And of course there's a message here in verses 11 through the end of the chapter here about these anointed ones. And most scholars believe those anointed ones are Joshua and Zerubbabel. So he's saying these are the ones who stand as priest and king. Again, these important roles who stand as God's ministers to minister before the people and to encourage them. So that's basically the lay of the land with the text. But what it is here is a promise that no matter how difficult things look, God can turn them around. And that brings us to a sure promise from the Lord. A sure and certain promise seen throughout the Scriptures that what seems impossible to man, God overcomes. And it's as if nothing to him. You can think again back to the story of Abram. And God comes and visits him and says, in one year's time, Sarah will bring forth a child. And, of course, we know Sarah laughs. Abram had laughed just before that in the Scriptures, but she laughs. And the question is asked, is anything too hard for God? Is there anything impossible for Him? Well, if they are, they're because of His own character, right? God is not going to sin, right? But in terms of His power and the ways that we think of Him acting, uh, He is able to do whatever He wills to do. He is God. He is not constrained in the ways that we are. And so whatever obstacles they see will easily be overcome if it's in God's will to do the work. And I think the same thing is told throughout the Scriptures. Uh, Sarah, who do you think you're talking to, he says. If I've declared that in one year's time you will be with child, then in one year's time you will be with child. Often marvel at the faith of Rahab. Here's this uh, lowly woman of questionable moral character in a pagan city. And yet her faith is astounding, isn't it? She says, I've heard of what your God did to the Amorite kings. I heard of what he did even before that in bringing you out of Egypt. And I know that whatever he says, he will accomplish. So all I'm asking is this. When you take this city by his power, that you spare me and my family. That is faith, isn't it? It's as if it's already occurred. It is sure to happen. God has declared it. Can I just ask this? Be merciful to my household. We have faith in your God. That He will act in just the way He's promised. I wonder how many in Israel believed that God was going to take Jericho. My friends, we see it over and over, don't we? Jesus says, I have not found this faith in all of Israel. It's a reminder of the need for faith. And you see this over and over again. Hannah down on her face. At the tabernacle, praying out for God to do something she knew was earthly, by earthly ability, impossible. She couldn't do anything about her condition, but she knew God could. So again, we've seen this over and over again, this great promise. And yet God had made other promises that we've been looking at, of a coming king and priest, a conqueror, a a coming lamb of God, perfect, perfect sacrifice. And when Mary recognizes her part in the story, all she can do is be in awe of God. He who is mighty has done great things for me. He's flexing his might to the world. And he's working through me. A lowly maidservant in the back hills of Israel. No one of importance at all. Surely a small thing. And we're told again and again not to despise small things. Spurgeon said, it's a great folly to despise the day of small things for it is usually God's way to begin a great work with small things. George Whitfield, kind of speaking on a similar thread, said, all you have to do is look at Abram. Why would God choose Abram? A man of a pagan family and the Backwoods of modern-day Iraq? Why him? And yet, look what God has done from him, working through him and through his descendants, just as he'd promised to do. So again, God chooses to work in just this way. And when you think about the ironic ways in which He work, it shows us again not to despise small things because he does great things in just that way. And it's a pattern you find throughout the Scriptures. Throughout the Scriptures. If you would turn just for a moment to 1 Corinthians, I want to remind you of something that is said here. Paul comes to Corinth. A great city, a truly great city in the ancient world. I mean, a wicked city, but a great city in the way that most great cities tend to be wicked, right? I mean, it's just the way it is. Think of a great city in our own day. It'll be known for its wickedness. So it was in the days of St. Paul as well. And so Corinth is a uh, a city on an isthmus. There is ports on both sides. It's a major travel hub. People are coming in and out. Great wealth flowing through this great city. So Paul's going to go there. And of course, he's had the experience in Athens of trying to use wisdom and poetry to preach the gospel. I'm not sure if he regretted that. But it's interesting, it's not the take he took here, is it? It's not the path he chose. As Paul comes here, he does something quite different. Let's listen, starting in verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent, Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For the Jews request a sign, and Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. But to those who are called both Jew and Greek, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, uh, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world, and the things which are despised, God has chosen, and the things which are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in His presence, but of Him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, that, as it is written, He who glories, let him glory in the Lord. Now, my friends, Paul is basically explaining why when he came to Corinth, he didn't come with words of wisdom. He came preaching Christ and Him crucified. A message of foolishness. Now, I'm not going to go back through this, but we've gone through uh, parts of the Corinthian letters before. And it's important to note this was a city that loved a good argument. The sophists were the great stars of Corinth, the people who would literally get paid to make up any argument you wanted. In fact, one of the interesting things is uh, they would do this. They would take money, and you would tell them what you wanted to argue. You'd say, argue that a fried bologna sandwich is better than a bologna sandwich. Now, I'm not sure if they had bologna, but you get the idea. OJ's with me. OJ's with me. So they'd make an argument. They'd make an argument. Here's why a fried bologna sandwich is better. Another sophist would be paid to take up the argument for a cold bologna sandwich. And this is what would happen. They loved a good argument. They loved a good speech. And Paul knows that, but he says, I'm not coming with any of that. No rhetorical flourish. No brilliance of debate. I'm going to come and preach a simple message of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And the reason for that is, I want you to recognize that the power is in the Spirit moving, not in my rhetorical flourish. I don't want anybody going... You know, that Paul is a better speaker than all the other speakers we've heard. Therefore, I'm going to go with him. Paul says, no, I want to see the Spirit move in such a way that it's God's power moving. Now, again, what we see is then what would seem foolishness to the world. A small thing. Paul, not very impressive looking, short I mean, every description we get of him is that he's not very impressive to look at. And apparently his speech isn't that great either because over and over they say you know, he's got much more power when he writes than when he's in person. He must not have been a very bold speaker. or Maybe he was, but uh, it doesn't seem his speeches came across that way. And so here Paul is saying, that's okay. I don't have to do much. Just preach the truth and let God work. My friends, that's a small thing, but God says he's working through small things. Not many wise, not many powerful. God is working through his people, through his people to bring forth his work. Now, how does all this tie into the Christmas story? I want to close by thinking about that for just a second. If uh, you were in Jerusalem that night, those wise men say, we hear that he's, in Bethlehem, Let's say they had more details than they had. Uh, it's a baby born in a stable. Possibly surrounded by animals. His parents are nobodies. I mean, son of a tecton is his father. It seemed to be his earthly father right in that sense. His mother. Don't even know who she is. Some lonely maiden of no account. No one's heard of either of these people. They claim that the father is not really Joseph in a sense, right? But uh, that God has done this creative miracle in Mary. And he's in a manger. Are you betting that's the Son of God entering the world? Have You ever asked yourself that question? What would you have done in Jerusalem? Would you have said, you know what, I'm going to trek out all the way to Bethlehem and just see? I'd like to think I would, but isn't there a part of us that thought, if this is truly God's Son, this is too small a thing? Too small a thing. God's not going to have His precious Son be born in a manger, in a stable. It's too small. And then as the story continues, the Messiah is going to go to a cross. Die, as, die in the same way criminals die? In fact, surrounded by criminals? doesn't make sense to me. Too small. Foolishness. Foolishness to the Greeks who say, you, you're, you're worshiping a dead person. A person who was crucified. The Jews say, this can't be. This can't be it. It's too small a thing. The story is not grand enough. We need a whole lot more. We need like kings, like Caesar, trembling. Well, you have some of that, don't you? Herod trembling at the word. Try to find him, hunt him down, kill him, get rid of him. The true king, Herod, the imposter. An Idumean sitting on the throne of Israel. My friends, it seems too small a thing. And yet it's how God chose to send his son into the world to win the ultimate battle on Calvary's cross. And it fits a pattern, doesn't it? Of large and grandiose things being humbled and the small and humble things being lifted up. Fits a pattern found throughout Scripture. How could these uneducated fishermen be the ones God would choose? To be his ambassadors. These fishermen and tax collectors. How is it that God used shepherds in the Old Testament? My friends, it's a reminder over and over not to despise small things. Because God often works in small things. One of the reasons that we... Have church even on snowy days, even if it was worse than this. As we remember stories like Charles Spurgeon, who ducked into a church on a snowy day as a young man, just to get out of the snow, but heard a deacon preaching. The pastor couldn't even make it to church that day. The snow was so bad. But a deacon stepped in and preached that day on Isaiah. Look unto me, Isaiah said. And that day, Charles Spurgeon had a lot of Puritan background from his grandfather, looked to Christ and was saved. A small thing, the decision to keep the door open. Service, what difference it make if we close this morning? And yet God did a great thing in such a small decision. My friends, as we leave 2020, it's been a hard year. But God has done great things even in 2020. And as we look to the year ahead, we think about 2021, who knows what it will bring. But one thing we ought to commit to is that we never despise or overlook an opportunity because we think it's too small. We don't know what God might do with small things. I'm guilty of that, sometimes thinking, ah, that's just not worth doing, it's too small. But we never know what God might do with it. So, my friends, I pray we'll think about this scripture as we enter the new year and we'll give glory to God. Amen.